This episode is powered by data storytelling training from Untold Content and Data Plus Science. Transform your data into powerful visual stories by learning best practices in data visualization and technical storytelling. Whether you're a Power BI or a Tableau person, or you just want to better communicate your insights, this workshop will inspire you to see the stories that lie within your data. Learn more at untoldcontent.com slash data storytelling training. Welcome to Untold Stories of Innovation, where we amplify untold stories of insight, impact, and innovation. Powered by Untold Content, I'm your host, Katie Trout-Taylor. Our guest today is Tim Raderstorf. He is the Chief Innovation Officer at The Ohio State University College of Nursing. He is the founder of the Innovation Studio at OSU, co-author with Bern Melanick of a book called Evidence-Based Leadership, Innovation and Entrepreneurship in Nursing and Healthcare. He's of course also Head of Academic Entrepreneurship at the Erdos Institute and a TEDx speaker. Tim, thank you. I'm so honored to have you on the podcast. I'm so honored to be on the podcast, Katie. Thanks for thinking of me. Absolutely. So you are in the academic world, also in the healthcare world. Can you tell me a bit about the, the ways in which innovation um, is, you know, driving what you do? Sure. Um, so being a nurse, I, I've, I've been in the nursing profession for 10 years now, and, and there, there's kind of this untold motto of, of being a nurse and it's see a problem, solve a problem. Um, and that's very directly related to the innovation pathway that I see, see a problem, solve a problem. Um, so it's been intertwined within my education and my practice for, for over the last decade. Um, but it, it impacts my day-to-day in a much broader sense now that I've moved into this chief innovation officer role at the College of Nursing, uh, because my role has shifted um, from leading innovation or, or creating innovations, uh, which I, I still do, uh, but not nearly as much as I, I lead and empower others to be innovative and democratize innovation across our system. Um, so innovation in, at Ohio State in, occurs in, in many different ways. Um, and we take an incredibly broad lens to uh, what isn't health because uh, we believe that, that just about everything in the world is health. So as we dive in and talk about the things that are going on within our system, you may think, oh, the, well, that's not something you use in the hospital, uh, but it impacts the health and well-being of people on a much broader scale. Uh, so we, we're taking a very wide lens on, on what can be constituted as innovation and uh, an even wider lens on what could be constituted as uh, health and health and well-being. I'm so grateful that you brought up the concept of democratizing innovation. And obviously, coming from a university background, I, I'm also, a, I'm a former university professor mm-hmm. um, and, and now in the startup world, but... Not, not saying recovering yet? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> always, always in my heart, I will be, yes. of course. Um, but I love you're really, you're sort of, you have both, you have your, one foot in, I should say, in both worlds, really. Mm-hmm. And and I love that. So democratization of of ideas and and of innovation in particular. That's that's a very closely held value for most people who are teachers or professors um, or leaders in academia. I love in your TED talk. And if if listeners haven't watched Tim's TED talk, please go to YouTube and check it out. It's the participation trophy model for innovation and why it works. <laughs> which is one of my favorite TED Talk titles of all time, Tim. Well done. 
Thank you. I was like one of 60 that I had to choose from and I, I decided <laughs> I was going to go for it. I'm sure. But I, what I love about that is you start with the story about identity and the ways mm-hmm. in which we can sort of label ourselves in a limiting way. And you mm-hmm. say that, and I, I know I'm going long-winded here, but this gets back to the idea that innovation should be democratized. Mm-hmm. Is it's not exclusive to only a subsect of the population or only those people who are doing it in formal ways or whose job titles include the word innovation, right? You make this beautiful argument in the TED Talk that, that everyone, it, innovation must be democratized because people all have this ability to problem solve and look mm-hmm. around their current situation, that the current work that they're doing, the current lives that they're leading, communities that they're part of, and be able to see it through the lens of problem solving. And you know, it, what, what's the most interesting thing about it is that it's, it's evidence-based. So we know that innovation is most effective when it is done by the people at the front line, those who have the most intimate understanding of the problem. Um, this comes from research from a, from a, uh, professor at Kellogg School of Management uh, named Dylan Miner, um, and he's uh, complete, continued the study now at, at MIT, but they look at uh, what's called the ideation rate, which I talk about in the TED Talk, but it's essentially um, not just the number of ideas that are, are generated, because pe- when people hear ideation, they just think, all right, let, let's come up with as, as many ideas as we can, and we'll throw them at the wall and see what happens, see what sticks, um, which is actually, I think, a, a decent start. Um, but what the ideation rate that, that Miner refers to is the number of ideas that are generated by frontline staff with a very important and after that. And the and is that it, those ideas have to be approved by management. So you generate ideas, management buys on, provides the permission and the validation, and then you divide that number of the ideas that are approved by the total number of people in the system. And that's your ideation rate. The higher ideation rate, the higher your return on investment for innovation. Um, so it, it's incredibly applicable to the healthcare professions um, because uh, we have, a, you know, particularly in nursing, we have this large group of frontline workers, and you may have fifty to hundred direct reports reporting up to a manager or director. Um, so all these people have these ideas and they're coming forward, but that manager or director may not be at the decision-making level of the organization when it comes to budgeting and empowerment. So oftentimes these people are, are put in situations where they have to make tough decisions and um, start to default to a no when, when ideas come to them. Um, so it's incredibly important that organizations structure themselves so that they are empowering those at the front lines to bring their ideas forward and they're empowering their leaders to say yes and when people come to them with those ideas. So that way the system can, can capitalize on all the ideation that's occurring and figure out a way to uh, give both management and frontline staff a way to collaborate together on, on um, innovation. Brilliant. Okay, I want to make sure that I understand what you just said, because I I think it's so important. And I don't think anyone else on the podcast has mentioned this concept of the ideation rate, Mm -hmm. and using it as a measurement of innovation success. I I know that it's a, uh, it's an impactful, and like you said, it's an evidence based tool, or, 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 you know, a they call it a validated measure, if you will, Mm -hmm. but, um, but we haven't talked about it on the podcast. So in order to increase your ideation rate, you need to have management have a cultivate a mindset of yes and you, mm-hmm. the goal is to have 
more ideas coming from frontline staff that are being approved by management and that are aligned with the expectations and the views that management has uh, of what the organization needs, right? Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Exactly. So, so exactly. I think storytelling has to play a very important role in that, right? Anytime we see someone on the front lines having to share a big idea or even a small improvement innovation idea with people who are ultimately deciding whether to green light or kill that concept, mm-hmm. there's always an element of storytelling to that, right? Good. Storytelling is perhaps the most important aspect of innovation. Uh, because if you can't evoke emotion through story, then you're not going to get the person at the end to buy in and get that yes and. So you have to create with them the what's in it for me and, and make the, the, the listener, the, the, the person hearing the story, understand the value across the system, uh, but explicitly for them. And uh, so that's what we coach up our, our innovators and entrepreneurs in is, is understanding your audience, knowing your audience, and tailoring your message to them so that they understand the whiffum. Yes, exactly. And so it's interesting, you know, from a management perspective, I, I love that advice that you gave about having a yes and mindset, trying to build upon the ideas of other individuals who you're managing or leading. I think it's also really critical for leaders and managers to be able to articulate their needs, their visions, their objectives, their goals to frontline staff. So, uh, of course, that kind of strategic alignment is going to really give better support to the frontline person who has a great idea and who doesn't want it to die just because they didn't align it correctly with whichever, you know, part on the roadmap or strategic plan that it might not, you know, their, their inability to fit it into that picture that it needs to fit into for management and leadership to say yes. Absolutely, Katie. And it, it allows one other thing that's really important. It allows for positive deviance. So even if, um, even if people are, are working against each other in the system, if it's positive deviance, that's okay. So what, what, I'm, what I mean by this is um, your management team, your, your, your leadership may have a vision for what's occurring. And there may be people within the front lines that see a better way to, to do that. Um, and it allows them to push the boundaries of, of why their, their methodology may be better, faster, safer, cheaper for the team, for the patients, for whoever is involved. Um, but if you don't have that message from, um, from the leadership about where the direction of the organization is going, then everyone flounders and it is, you know, is, is aimed towards what, what feels like a moving target at times. Positive deviance is an incredibly important aspect of innovation within a system. And uh, so, so having a, a a direction, a mission, whether it be flawed or not, is very important because it allows people to, to challenge it and test it. Absolutely. Can you tell us about how this kind of innovation is a little bit different in healthcare than, say, in other sectors? Sure. Uh, so I, I like to say that my, my role as a chief innovation officer in healthcare is probably the easiest industry um, to, to be an innovation officer in. Um, and admittedly, you know, we're, we're recording this, this podcast right in the throes of COVID. Uh, but up until three months ago, I would say to you, uh, healthcare is not a disruptable industry. And I still have that belief, but I, I, I think I may be more likely to be proven wrong than I was three months ago. Uh, but the reason that I feel that way, Katie, is because healthcare, the industry itself, that, that what, what we think of when we go to hospitals or, or nurse practitioner or physician clinics or wherever um, is uh, 100% uh, 
dependable upon human behavior. And that's the behavior of the patient, but it's also the behavior of those who are running the system. And if you're trying to change a system and it involves massive amounts of behavior change, it's not going to occur. It's going to be incremental changes that eventually get you to that point that if you went from, from A to D, it would feel disruptive. But because of the C and uh, the B and C that are built in there that are incremental changes to get you there, that is how I view healthcare as an industry um, being able to be disruptive over the long game, over multiple incremental changes. So um, with that being the case, you know, I think as a, as a healthcare innovator, um, you can't go too far downstream um, if it requires massive behavior change. So if you're going to create a new drug or a new therapy that could, could cure cancer, that's absolutely something that, that it can be disruptable and um, can, can have a massive impact and go from A to Z, no problem. But because the, behind that, it's usually someone writing a different script or um, you know, making minor changes to the behavior. But if you wanted to say, okay, uh, we're going to, instead of having um, all of our oncology patients come in for weekly visits or monthly visits, we're going to shift that all to telehealth. And then we're going to send a nurse to their house every other telehealth visit. Uh, and then a pharmacist is going to come in between. That would be a, a massively disruptive behavioral component change to the system and would take a very long time to get integrated. So. There's a long-winded version of saying the things that happen in healthcare are, are and, and the innovations that get adopted, I see them usually being innovations that have already been adopted by other industries. Like, for example, secure text messaging has, has just come into the fray in the last two to three years in healthcare. But text messaging has been around since, you know, 1999, and people people were very comfortable with it. Other industries adapted and used it in technology, but eventually got to the tipping point where healthcare said, this is going to get, this is getting used. We need to find a way to do it more securely. And, um, so when, when I look in, in healthcare innovation, I look for clinicians to be driving the, the innovations that come to light. Those people who understand the problems the most, they're going to be driving the more disruptive innovations. And then people from the outside your, your communication companies, whoever those may be, um, your, your healthcare distribution companies, they're going to be doing the incremental innovation and bringing that back to the system. And that, that's likely going to be based off of successes that are occurring in other industries. You know, I think a lot of your your leadership in, in the innovation space in healthcare is around identity and helping everyone within the healthcare system see themselves as having the potential to be innovative. What are your thoughts on nurse-led innovation and the role that nurses should and can play in innovation? So I, I think um, this may be contrarian coming from a nurse. So I don't love the term nurse-led innovation. Oh, um, okay. I so love to hear why. I, I love the term innovation. Um, (laughs) And we don't call it physician-led innovation. We don't call it pharmacist-led innovation. We don't call it um, environmental services-led innovation. We don't call it dentist-led innovation. So why are we singling ourselves out as a profession that has already been pushed aside? And although we're the largest profession in healthcare, we deliver 90% of healthcare worldwide. Um, and there's about four times more nurses that are practicing in the U.S. than physicians, which would be the second highest group. Um, 
we 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 have been placed to the, to the lower end of the totem pole, but we've been leading innovation this whole time. Unfortunately, instead of because we're not in a position of power, we call our innovations workarounds, and then we hide them from management because we don't want to get in trouble for using tongue depressors and tape in creative ways. <laughs> um, so. We, we absolutely are innovators and nurses have been leading it since Florence Nightingale started the profession. Um, but what we need to be doing a better job of is interprofessional innovation, interprofessional collaboration. And if we're, if we're creating something for nurses, then we better be co-designing that with uh, patient care assistants and patients, people that, that it's going to be utilized on. If it's something that's going to be utilized with physicians, then we need to co-design with them and also bring in the engineering team and utilize each other's skill sets and not try to be this jack of all traits, but to be this niche leader and innovator and leverage that and those people around us to rise the tide of, of all. So I'm a big believer, um, and this is the main reason that we democratize innovation. You know, we, we received a very large gift to start the innovation studio from Gary and Connie Sharp, who own a company called Healthcare Logistics. And, you know, I think they would have been okay with us saying, hey, we're going to do this nursing, um, this nursing innovation program. But we knew that if we siloed ourselves off and set up a nursing innovation program, that wasn't going to allow our students, faculty, and staff to engage with new people across the system and learn how an engineer thinks about the same problem that a nurse is trying to solve or how a physician thinks about that problem. So when we, when we do innovation, we don't, need to, we don't need to put on the hat of the nurse or the hat of the physician or the hat of the, the pharmacist. We need to put on the hat of an innovator and team member, and we need to have empathy and utilize the, the concepts of human-centered design and design thinking. And that's where we need to be focused on how we lead innovation is by doing it collaboratively and collectively and having impact be our number one goal. And I think I love what you're saying here. I think in a way what you're saying is let's all call ourselves innovators. If you yes. are passionate about this, if this is, you know, let's not, like you said, hide it or call it a workaround, demean it, no matter mm -hmm. what profession we're in, um, let, do call thyself an innovator. Right? Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. yes. I would love to hear, Tim, some of the stories, the innovation stories coming out of OSU's College of Nursing or the Innovation Studio or the Erdos Institute. Sure. Um, so let me start with the latter because this may be the most interesting to you and your background uh, with the Erdos Institute. So um, as I'm sure you're aware, the U.S. graduates somewhere between 40 and 60,000 PhD students per year. And there's about four to 6,000 uh, PhD academic jobs for those individuals. So most of these people are, are never going to have a chance at the dream job that they initially started out to get and, and find that academic position that they're hoping for and go tenure track and go out there and change the world. Um, but these are some of the best and brightest and most motivated individuals within our, our country. Um, and we pull in wonderful people from, from all over the world to, to come into the system. So what uh, Roman Holowinski, who's, who's the founder of the Erdos Institute, started off with um, was a series of uh, boot camps that would help PhD students who are ending their uh, matriculation through their program reframe their expertise as data scientists. And we would partner them with large or small to large 
organizations who were looking to hire data scientists. And together, they would go through this boot camp with their employees and the PhD students, and they'd be able to kind of see if this is the right fit and then have job placement on the back end. And this program has evolved to help you know, uh, students now at Ohio State, Rutgers, Michigan, um, all find employment after, after a tenuous PhD uh, program and doing that outside of the traditional academic realm. But one of the other key components that Roman had envisioned was we, we shouldn't only help PhDs find jobs that they love, we should help them create jobs that they love. So that's what my role is at the Airdosh Institute, is to run our uh, entrepreneurship programs as the head of academic entrepreneurship um, and bring in PhDs, not just from Ohio State, from, but from the schools that I mentioned and across the world, um, to explore an entrepreneurial pathway, whether that be with their research or whether that be as uh, a lead scientist, a chief science officer uh, with startups as they're getting off the ground. It's incredible. Yes. So I'm beaming over here. I know that listeners can't see that, but um, this is such an incredible thing. I, you know, I ultimately went, of course, into industry in, in my own way, in an entrepreneurial way. Mm-hmm. And it, it was so challenging. I think a lot of academics are trained to see themselves only in academic settings, especially in the humanities, I'll admit. Um, I think yeah, Katie, that- it's back full circle to that. I'm defining myself by what I'm not, not by what I am. Exactly. Exactly. So that is, it's really incredible. I, I, I love that. I love that innovation story. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. And then there's, you know, the other amazing things that I, I can't believe I get paid to do. Um, <laughs> one is, is I'm a professor in the uh, Master of Healthcare Innovation program at Ohio State that we launched about four years ago. Um, and this is a fully online master's degree on innovation leadership. Uh, particularly in in healthcare, so um, it, it's in an incredible curriculum, and and you know we're bringing in students from now across the country um, into our I believe it's our fifth cohort that just started last week. Um, so it, it's a, a pretty exciting time to to be teaching healthcare innovation because as as we talked about in the in the environment that we're in right now, uh, there's so much opportunity. And it's going to be realized by the people who raise their hands and say, I'm willing to take on this problem. So uh, that, that's an incredibly exciting thing. And, and admittedly, we, we haven't seen much of the fruits of our labor from that right now. Um, You're young. It's young. Yes. It's young, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and we, we all started with PPE. And now that PPE is hopefully getting to, getting to a safer location for everyone, um, there's going to be a lot of new and exciting ideas. And as people understand COVID more and more, um, we're going to figure out things that not only impact COVID, but impact the system and innovation uh, for years to come. So, um, I mean, admittedly, like when when everything hit, we went out, we bought um, a a rack, you know, a, a storage rack that you can have, that you can get at Home Depot. And we bought as many 3D printers from, from Micro Center that we could that would fit on that. And we started printing masks and we started printing face shields and we started printing face shield holders yes. and, you know, basically anything that we could, the, the ear protectors um, 
And, you know, we've been dropping those off at the, the health system on a regular basis. Um, but fun fact, we're headquartered in Cincinnati, not far from you. And mm-hmm. Centrifuge converted its entire startup space into the exact same kind of structure, just filled it with 3D printers and, and started producing masks and shields as, as quickly as they could. It's really it's incredible. So amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, there, there's companies all across, like uh, one, of, one of my favorite companies out of Columbus is AntFlow, uh, which provides feminine hygiene products. Um, to uh, to companies that and they're organic and sustainable, um, and it's just a really wonderful company. But they immediately shifted mm. to to making masks for a variety of reasons. But they realized that if they're selling their, their products were all B two B, and people weren't coming to the office anymore, then women weren't going to be getting these products from their from their um, employers they're going to be purchasing them from from home or you know through the internet or, or at the grocery store or wherever sure. so they needed to find another revenue stream as well and it, it's it's a win-win for everyone and it's been just so inspiring to see um the ingenuity and um the ability to adapt and pivot of, yes. of companies that like centrifuge i mean and and, and inflow both well-funded companies who had had significant revenue streams or had revenue streams um and here they are having to having to pivot and follow you know the entrepreneurial methodology that everyone says that you have to do they're doing it so much further downstream than anyone ever thought that would be the case but it's great to see their flexibility and their adaptability in the situation so I applaud them and all these companies that are are doing whatever they can right now, not just to stay afloat, but to solve a big problem. Yes, exactly. I think, you know, the crisis is devastating and and it's, you know, it's going to cause so much harm and, and, and at a personal level, at a community level, a global level. But at the same time, I think when we're all aligned with the same problem in our minds and on our hearts, incredible innovations can happen. And I think that the, the example of the work that you're doing, uh, your teams are, are involved in and, and the ones that you've already shared and from other sectors is, is all evidence of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, this, it, I, this will be a revolution. I'm not, I'm not sure what it's going to be called, um, but this is, is forcing people to be more creative, more uh, resourceful than we've ever had to be before. And when those things occur, uh, that that's the perfect recipe for innovation and uh, and exponential growth. So I, I'm incredibly um, saddened by what's going on. I you know wouldn't wouldn't have wished this upon anyone. Um, but it, the silver lining on the back end is is what is going to be birthed from this. I couldn't have put it any better. Tim, I, I'm so grateful these, for these stories, for this conversation, and, and the methodologies, the theories that you've shared as well. I'm so grateful that you made time to be on the podcast today. Is there any other advice that you would like to give to all of us innovators out there? Yes. Uh, don't wait for a permission slip. You have it already. So go out there and get started. Um, and then be kind to yourself through your failures. The, the greatest successes that have occurred in my life have been um, not the results of what I'd, I'd say catastrophic failures, but things that I had to wait a lot longer for than I thought I was going to. Um, so be comfortable in that 
uncomfortable phase where you're waiting, knowing that growth and comfort don't coexist. Uh, so if you're feeling comfortable, you're probably not growing and it may be time to push yourself or to, to bask and, and enjoy that lack of growth and, and have some time to just breathe. Um, but be kind to yourself during those times where you are really uncomfortable because that's when the growth is occurring and that's when you're going to be your most creative and, and your most impactful. I know that innovators and professionals everywhere are taking those words to heart, whether you're a business owner or in a business that's that's struggling or if you're fearful um, or unemployed even at this time. I really hope that you take those words to heart and uh, continue to be patient, work hard, uh, continue to think creatively and, and don't lose hope. Tim, thank you. This has been an incredible conversation. I'm so pumped to continue following the Innovation Studio and OSU in general, the, the, the nursing innovation program. How wonderful. And of course, the Erdős Institute, that speaks directly to my heart. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you were here on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Katie, it's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to follow us on social media and add your voice to the conversation. You can find us at Untold Content.